Hey there, quick heads up before we kick off today's episode. We're a small team effort so far, just the two of us and our editor making all of this happen. And now we're looking to take this show to the next level and could use your support to make it possible. We want to make sure that these conversations stay uninterrupted. So instead of selling ads, we've set up a Patreon community where you can get some cool extras like exclusive content, behind the scenes access, and a chance to have your questions answered by some of our guests. Your support matters a lot. So please check out the Patreon link in the show notes for this episode or go to theother22hours.com and click on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening, and here comes the episode. This is the Other 22 Hours Podcast. Where our goal is to provide musicians and other creatives with tools to create sustainability so you can sustain your creativity. Welcome to today's episode of the Other 22 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Schaefer-Hayes. And I am Michaela Ann. And since this show is brand new, I'm assuming you are a brand new listener. So thank you for checking it out. We like to think of this show as the anti-album cycle podcast. So what that means is it's not your typical show where our guests are going to come on and talk about their new record or their new tour. We call it the Other 22 Hours because we wanted to focus on the time that we as musicians are not on stage and explore different tools and routines that our guests use to keep balance in their lives during the less than shiny times. Between the two of us, we have almost 25 years of experience touring and working in the music business. I've spent the better part of the last decade putting out records on my own as well as with labels, touring the world, and building an independent career. And I started making records with friends in high school then spent years on the road with a bunch of different bands before deciding that I really like to make records. And so now I spend a lot of time right here in my studio. If you're watching on YouTube, my studio here in Nashville, making records and writing songs for TV and commercials. So essentially, Michaela and I are lifers. And through all of this, we've learned that there's no one right way to build a career around your passion. And in an industry where so much is out of our control, left up to luck, being in the right place at the right time, who you know, we wanted to focus on the things that are within our control. So with that idea in mind, we decided to invite our friends on to have conversations about the other times that are outside of the public eye and ask them questions like, what do you do to create sustainability so that you can sustain your creativity? Today's guest is Joe Pug. Joe Pug is an incredible singer-songwriter from Maryland. He's been in the game for about 15 years now. I've been lucky enough to tour with him over the last several years and see his show night after night. And I will say that of all Everybody in this business, I don't know if there's someone I respect more than Joe Pug. And despite Michaela touring with him for years, this was really the first time I've been able to sit and have a conversation with him face to face. And I kind of stepped in knowing what to expect because Joe has a great podcast called The Working Songwriter Podcast. And his email newsletter is a great read. It's really informative. It's really entertaining. And it doesn't clog up my inbox all the time. Yeah. So today we got to chat with him about how he has evolved from starting out a buzzy upstart in his early 20s to becoming a family man and how he's really adapted his career to fit his interests and his desire rather than sacrificing his personal relationships himself to fit into the mold of the career. And we'd spend a lot of time talking about understanding and chasing down what you're interested in almost exclusively when it comes to your creativity. And then the opposite end of the spectrum and how important it is to keep like really great data on 
the business end of your career. That way you have an objective marker on how to really gauge what is working and what's not and how well you're doing. A lot of times us as creatives, when we're building a career around our passion, it's really hard to get emotion out of the way. And we might feel that we're doing great or feel that we're doing horribly. And when you keep it all in numbers, you get a great view of what's happening without all of that noise in there. But let's let Joe tell you about it. That sounds like a kid's show. Let's let Joe tell you about it. Hey, Joe, why don't you tell us about it, Joe? So without further ado, here's our conversation with Joe Pug. Welcome. Thank you for being one of our first guests on the other 22 hours. So I know that we've emailed and texted and stuff, but we always just like to start out reiterating that this is not too dissimilar from your podcast, but it's not an album promotion podcast. We want to try and talk about the things that we don't normally talk about in public without trying to make people more vulnerable than they're comfortable. But we want to talk about the ways that you've learned and continue to learn to center your creativity and care for yourself through a career and industry that kind of does everything to make that incredibly hard. So one of the first questions I had, I've had the privilege of touring with you and getting to know you a little bit over the last couple of years and then was have been reading a bunch of interviews that you've done and you more than most people seem like someone who's constantly reinventing ways to do this and to make it more amenable to your life and what you want out of this career versus, no, I have to sacrifice everything and just do what the business tells me I need to do. Was that kind of your ethos from the beginning? And has that evolved? And how has that evolved even more, especially as you've gotten older and started a family? No, I was much more career focused in my 20s, and I was much more willing to make massive sacrifices on the personal end. Not only was that fine in my 20s, but it was really desirable. And I really enjoyed finding all of my meaning, for the most part, through my job and my business. But then I hit my 30s, I got married, I started a family, and that all changed immediately. It wasn't even a question of whether I was going to sometimes prioritize music and sometimes prioritize my wife and my kids. It was like, my wife and my kids are my priority now. Full stop, there's not a close second. And I feel like because I had lived out a lot of stuff in my 20s and gotten to do it full on, I didn't have any hangups about being like, and I will quit this business right now. I don't care, I'll go manage a Jiffy Lube tomorrow. I know how to run QuickBooks. I I could be really useful to anybody's business and stay home and watch my kids and be around my family. So I feel like in some ways I needed to do that thing where I leaned into my career early so that there weren't any hangups. It's like if I had to leave the music business, man, I don't know. I gave it the old college try. There was never going to be anything like, I wonder what would have happened if I had gone for it. You know, it's like I went for it and, you know, it played out the way that it played out and that's fine. Yeah, I feel like we still have that conversation kind of every few weeks. We're like, so uh, what masters are you going to go get this week? (laughs) What are we going to do now? How are we going to shift careers? If you own a business, and particularly if you're creative that owns a business, if you're not at least yearly checking in in a real way, being like, is it responsible for me to do this for another year? I think you're a little bit out to lunch. You need to be doing that at least yearly to say, you know, is this sustainable? Is this smart for me? Is this smart for my family? Because otherwise, I think you're living in a little bit of denial. It's a crazy thing to do for a living. So you might as well acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really just the last year myself, 
because I've slowly over the last seven years shifted from being on the road all the time, being a sideman, flying from the end of one tour to the start of another tour with another band. And mm-hmm. I like to say the pandemic called my bluff. For years, I was like, oh, I want to spend less time on the road. I want to be in my studio. I want to make records. And the pandemic's like, cool, here you go. Right. Let's see what that's like. And really just the last year, I've tightened down the screw on like the business end of my business and like keeping a lot of data on everything. That way I have like a really tangible way to compare like how is this going or even more so like what is working, what is beneficial which I think is from having a kid. It's like, I don't want to waste my time. If this isn't going to work, let's move on to something else. I mean, every artist should have a, at the very least, run a profit loss report every year Mm -hmm. with some kind of software that kind of categorizes at least the broad categories. And then you can compare between years, before tax income, your after tax income. And, and sometimes it surprises you in a negative way. Like, oh man, we've whew, we've been making less money than we should. Sometimes it surprises you in a positive way where you feel like you haven't been having that good of a year. And then you look at the numbers and you say, oh, we're actually up 15% in net revenue here. Don't trip. It's okay. The money's there. I think because in creatives, everything is so feeling based on mm-hmm. what we do. And We both went to music school and I'm always like, they don't teach you the valuable things in music school. Like knowing all of the modes does nothing for me in my life as a professional musician. If I had learned about spreadsheets and taxes, I would be so much better off. But I think this past year, a lot of times when I've been like, oh, it doesn't feel like things are going well. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel as exciting as before. And like, am I epically failing this year? I learned over the years to start taking like very detailed spreadsheets of every single tour. So I have my profit loss. I have what I made on merch. And then, you know, he'll be like, look back and compare like you're doing better. And then I look at the actual hardcore data and I'm like, oh, I've sold more than I ever have. But maybe like my Instagram likes don't feel as exciting. I'm like, maybe that's just that the thrill is gone. Yeah, yeah, a certain type of thrill. I Doing those profit and losses, I found a composition notebook where I had cataloged via hand the numbers of people coming to shows on one of my first tours in 2009, 2010. And that tour, I felt like I was famous or something on that tour, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was all happening, all this stuff was great. And I look back and the most amount of tickets we sold at a show on that tour were like 150 and most of the shows had 30 people at them. If mm-hmm. 30 people came to one of my shows right mm-hmm. now, I would never go back to that market ever again for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just be like, done. Yeah. So, and then I can go to a place now and sell 125 tickets and feel like I'm bummed out about it. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's all relative. And, and yeah, you do have to have those metrics to remind you about it. Yeah. And it also piggybacking on what Michaela was saying about this business being feeling based, which I would assume is inherent in any business based around monetizing your passion. There's that drawing that you see a lot that feels like success is this straight line, but mm-hmm. it's actually just the squiggle that your toddler drew. And ultimately, you know, yeah. in the best case scenario, you start here and you end higher for those that are watching on YouTube. But there's so many ups and downs in the way. Having numbers and having spreadsheets that you can go back and look at is a really tangible way of being like, oh, I am like much further down this road. So there's that aspect, but then also the aspect of how you feel about your identity as an artist and how you feel like you've been perceived. And what has your relationship to that been like? Like when you first started out, what was it like 2009 or earlier? Because I was right out of college and I worked at a record label, None Such Records. And I remember hearing about you and I remember all the buzz about Joe Pug and like his comparisons to Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan. And like, what does that do 
to your head and how do you then deal with expectations and not meeting expectations or exceeding expectations and then how that feeds your identity to yourself and your relationship to your work and how has that evolved over the last what 15 years or so yeah at the very start i got to do that little ride that a lot of artists get to do with their debut record if you have a debut record that gets some buzz things can take off or seem like they're taking off very quickly and and a lot of opportunities in those first 18 months of my career presented themselves i got to go on tour with steve earl i was touring on his tour bus in europe 18 months later i got to play all the big festivals Lollapalooza, bonnaroo all that stuff got a bunch of great press when press still kind of meant something and this is all like a pre-spotify world so there's no playlists or anything like that to get but you get like the paste magazine sampler cd or something like that mm-hmm. you know like oh I which is about that. yeah yeah it, that was like a, that was like getting playlisted at the time which yeah. makes me sound like a dinosaur but it is <laughs> what it is and so i got to go on that ride it does mess with your ego a bit definitely when you're 24 years old and you're just like man i got the world by the short hairs and i know more than other people and i'm so great and then life asserts itself reality asserts itself and you got to come back down to earth and that's a good thing that's a really good thing and that happened pretty quick for me i'd say that initial ride lasted the first two years and the last 13 years have been a different thing of adjusting to that new normal i think a dangerous thing and i really don't think that this is sour grapes but i think a dangerous thing is if you get to go on that ride and then it really takes off for you i think you can really start getting high in your own supply at that point and uh surround yourself with a lot of people that don't say no to you and tell you that everything that you say is great and unless you have really good people in your life and unless you're a really grounded exceptionally wise person i think that can go sideways really quick but yeah long story short life humbles you in general but the music business will definitely humble you very quickly but that's good and that's fine and it ends up making you a better artist in a lot of ways i would guess and it's the way of the world that humbling experience for you did that affect your creative process after you had that initial ride did you have like a period where it was hard to write did you have a period where you're like jiffy lube looks pretty cool like how did that look for you it just didn't line up for me i assumed there would be the same amount of buzz behind every project that i did after the first one had a lot of buzz and that can't be the case for anybody I was listening to John Hyatt on Spotify the other day, and I discovered a record that he put out in like the year 2000 that I wasn't familiar with. I'm a huge John Hyatt fan. I'm a massive John Hyatt fan. And I had never spent any time with this album that he put out in 2000. So even me, as like a really hardcore John Hyatt fan, this album that he worked really hard on around the turn of the century, that was at that time for him, I'm sure, like the most important thing to him, even a lot of his hardcore fans didn't even listen to it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff to do in life. And there's only so much time that you have to listen to music. And when you do listen to music, there's only so much time you have to listen to one artist. So it did mess with me at first that it's hard to get people's attention with every project. But you just realize that you don't have a lot of control over that. And all you have to do is just keep on making art because it's desirable. Keep on finding a way to finance that in a way. And then when the zeitgeist moves your way or moves away from you, no one can really guess at that. I've seen a lot of people that think that they can guess at that. And I think they're full of it. I really don't think that you can (laughs) can do that. Or if they do catch the zeitgeist, what they'll say afterwards, they'll put on like some kind of post hoc rationalization as to why it happened. But they never like intentionally or rationally 
planned their way into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're talking to uh, Joey and Kenneth later today of the Milk Carton Kids for people listening who don't know who that is. And I was listening to their episode on your podcast mm-hmm. and you guys were talking about the aspect of luck that comes into all of this and not taking anything personally. And this is something that came up with another person we interviewed recently of just, I've always thought, oh yeah, you got to have thick skin and don't take it personally when people don't like you or ignore you or whatever your music. But then the concept of, but you also can't take it personally when you're getting all the positive. There you go. There you go. And That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like I'm 36 and, I, and I've been at this for a while and I was like, oh, I feel kind of dumb that I'm like, oh yeah, I realized how much I have taken it personally when I've had good stuff happen of like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, now I'm doing it. Now I'm on the right path. And then like you put out another record and like those people who were so gung-ho about you, the gatekeepers or whatever, maybe they're like overwhelmed with the amount of records or they just don't like your new record. And all of a sudden they like don't respond to your email or don't pay attention. And I take it so personally. I'm like, and I realize, oh, it's because I took the positive so personally too, that I'm like, wait, but I thought you loved me. Right, right. And it's such a hard balance when your career is based on being so open emotionally to be able to create. But then you have to have some sort of block because you can't take it all in, the good or the bad. You can't let the good things happening fuel you or make you feel like, oh, this is because I'm good or this is because I'm doing the right thing. Because then the come down is even worse. Like you have to kind of build a barrier and be like, I write songs because this is what I feel like I want to do in life or what I meant mm-hmm. to do or what my purpose is or whatever. And you have to be detached from the outside, which feels impossible because the outside also determines how much you get to do it publicly in what way. And how much money you make. At this point, that's the metric that means the most to me. Not because I'm some like super greedy dude. I mean, I definitely I would take as much money as people would give me, but that is the metric by which I get to keep doing this. And yeah. other than that, I'm really not going to derive my self-worth one way or the other from this enterprise. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you have to go through a process to get to that place or did it just happen? Did it evolve? Did you have to like focus on that energy yeah, I just in yourself? Grew up. I, I, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> basically it's the idea as you get older, you realize that it's not that people think good or ill of you. It's just that people aren't thinking about you at all. It has yeah. nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. They're thinking about their own little business that they're running or their own little artistic project or what they have to get done for their family. And they're not really thinking about you until they need you to do something for them. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's how we all are. It's no big deal. So I don't think that change in me had anything to do necessarily with an artistic side or a creative side. I think it's just more generally maturing and growing up. Yeah, I know a lot of artists that are almost allergic to saying something like you just said, where the amount of money I make is important because it's almost like they don't want to come across greedy or some (laughs) other kind of insecurity like that. But at the end of the day, it's like you're running a business. Yeah. And if I really cared about money, I'd be in real estate. I wouldn't be in the freaking music business if I cared about money. (laughs) I've been here for 15 years. Making some bullshit, all right? So if I really, really cared about money, I can go flip houses. So you don't get to call me greedy because I want to turn a profit with this little business. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. Like, you can say that that's my micro choices within this, but my macro to be an artist for a living, like, by definition, that proves that money is not the most important thing to me. Just by being there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, changing for myself, changing my viewpoint of my business and really being like, no, I run a business, which goes in line with the amount of data that I've been keeping lately and all that has 
changed my relationship to social media as well. I know a lot of people struggle with likes and follows and all of that as I see it as an interpretation of a judgment of how good their art is and a reflection of how much people like their art mm -hmm. and how much their art is working and shifting my viewpoint to be like, I'm running a business. I then see social media as a marketing tool, which you hear a lot. That's all it is. It's nothing besides that. It's just a marketing tool. Yeah. And so all of the likes and all of the follows are a reflection of how well my marketing tactics are working. Correct. Yes. And not my art. And yes. so it purely keeps the numbers about something that is cold and inconsequential. Just, yes. just numbers. Not about my art, not about what I'm creating, but just how well my business push is working, essentially. Yeah, to me, that's all it's ever been. It's like this marketing arm. And even artists that are like really good and really creative with the social media stuff, ultimately, if there is a creative element to the marketing of it, it's still leading back to like a core product, a core thing, which is music. You're not selling your Instagram feed. That has no inherent value. It's, uh, I mean, I guess if you're selling the influence, but that's not what we yeah. do. Like influencers by definition, what they have to sell is their influence because they don't do anything else. You know what yeah. I mean? But if your core product is something else like visual art or music, then it's just pure marketing. That's all it is. Yeah. I have a problem with that because I feel like I've learned that my tendency is just to not really have boundaries anywhere. On social media, I'm like, I I'm a new mom so now I, I watch a lot of new mom content and I'm like mm -hmm. oh maybe I should post that stuff and I'm like primarily the people following you on Instagram are because of your music so they don't need to follow your now journey with <laughs> like sure. yeah. I mean maybe that is part of it but I'm just very like personal where when we had Georgia, Aaron was very direct about, hey, we need to have a discussion about how much you put our child on social media for all these strangers and like I don't want a bunch of strangers in yeah. Sweden knowing what our daughter looks like and what yeah. she had for breakfast. And I was like, okay, because my tendency would just be to be like, yeah, okay, this is what I'm doing today. And I noticed you don't post about your family at, at all, all on your social media. Mm -mm. Was that a discussion with Jamie or is that? No, I, I mean, I guess because I always had just looked at it as, and look, this is no shade on anybody else who does it in a different way. This is just mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Okay. But for me, I'd always looked at Instagram and social media as marketing. Therefore, there was never any question of whether I was going to put my wife and kids on it because I'm not going to use my kids as a tool for marketing. Right. It's never going to happen for me. Now, other people might do that and they might do it because I don't think that's how they look at it. I don't think that they would look at it as if they're like using their family in some way. But to me, because I looked at it solely as a marketing tool, I couldn't look at it in any other way if I put my kids or my wife on it other than I was like using them in some yeah. way that I was in some way like commercially exploiting what should be a pristine and sacred relationship. Yeah, because in a way with social media as a marketing tool, if you look at it as I'm trying to sell myself, if you add that component to selling your music, that you're also trying to entice fans by showing who you are through social mm -hmm. media and like develop a brand for yourself, whether that's actually a manufactured brand or just by being really transparent on social media, and then you include your family, that's part of the package. So it is mm -hmm. now I'm also selling my children who have no say in this of whether or not they want to be a part of this. There's no and consent. They, and then I think I would wager that there will be conversations 15 to 20 years from now where kids are saying, hey, why'd you do that? 
to me. But again, maybe I'm also wrong and maybe I'm an idiot for not doing it. You know what I mean? And maybe I'm just kind of old school and we're heading into a new kind of cultural space where it's just expected for people to exist in that digital realm. And it's expected for kids to be on that. But for me, again, because I conceptualize it solely as a tool for my business and I never conceptualized it as some extension of myself, I just couldn't imagine putting my kids on it. Yeah. And to touch on that point, another reason why we started this podcast was to demonstrate that there's no one right way to exist in this industry and to create a successful no. career. If your brand is, I'm a family person, mm-hmm. very outwardly, and it is including your kids, cool. That's your brand. That's you. Yeah, yeah. Who's to say I'm right and you're wrong? I don't yeah. know. Right. You know. This is <laughs> yeah. just the way I see it. And maybe 10 years from 20 years from now, my kids will be like, how come you never posted about it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that mean you don't love me as much? Mm-hmm. There's probably going to be some twisted. So, <laughs> you know, there's couples out there who fight about that. Little Johnny down the street already has a blue check mark, and he's only in the sixth <laughs> grade. I know. I know, man. <laughs> and also on the there's no one way to do this, I think there's a stereotype of what we think artists should be. Not organized, creative types that are spacey and party and whatever. And some people might be like, I never think about that. But I'm someone who I think struggled with that for a long time because I felt inherently at odds with what people said a true artist was because it didn't feel like me. And I still sometimes feel this way of like, oh, am I not an artist because I don't like to stay up all night and jam? I remember being at a festival one time and it was at Telluride and I was in the songwriting contest. And one of the people that worked for Telluride was like showing me where the camp was. And they were like, and that's where everybody like stays up and jams. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do that. And he was like, how are you even a musician? And I remember being like, I don't know, because I play music, (laughs) but but I don't want to stay next to a campfire and play my guitar and sing all night long because I'm going to feel sick and not have a voice tomorrow. And that's just not the way that I play music. But at the time, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, I guess I'm kind of a fraud because that's not what I want to do. Or I guess I need to figure out how to do that. And I've never wanted to really do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to remember with stuff like that when people say super passive-aggressive stuff like that, or that's just aggressive-aggressive. When someone would say something like that, it's like, would you ever in a million years say that to somebody? Especially somebody that you didn't know. It's like, no, you'd never say that because it's a really kind of bitter thing to say. And like, also, who is that guy showing you around? It's like, yeah, not, he wasn't you? a musician. Yeah, he worked yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, was, he, like, he like ran the gondola in the winter yeah. and then like needed a summer gig to stick around. Yeah, no, so it's, you got to really consider the source, I guess. Yeah, I really liked what you said. It was like, how are you even a musician? You're like, I don't know, I play music. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's it, period. I play music, yeah. I'm here to play music. Yeah, but I feel like I've now turned the corner on like the age where all of a sudden you feel a little older than like the 20 year olds. I went to a show recently of a musician who's in their 20s and like they were, you know, all going to the bar after like very excitedly. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going like they were like, oh, let's go to Dino's after. And I'm like, cool. No, I'm going home to go to bed. This isn't to say that you shouldn't do this or this isn't something that you just do in your 20s. But like the idea that that's what you're supposed to do, like you're supposed to hang. And I was talking to Aaron about like, because we're interviewing you today on the Milk Carton Kids and I've toured with both of you. And I'm like, there's no hang on those tours. (laughs) Like the show ends 
and everybody leaves on your tours as well as with the milk carton kids. Like yep. the hang that we had with the milk carton kids was we went to the aquarium all together uh, mm-hmm. one morning with our daughter. Yeah, 9.30 in the breakfast. morning. Like, yeah. yeah. But that's evolved because also it's more conducive to sustaining yourself on tour and giving a, the best performance that you can give when you yeah. take care of yourself and you sleep. How has that evolved for you over time? That's an ever-evolving thing because I, I do like to have fun. I don't work in a bank. I like to mix it up a little bit, but I can't really mix it up and have fun on the road because I got to get the shows done. I also run a really tight ship. 15 years in, I've never really had a tour manager. And so I do all the driving myself, all that stuff. So it's like at this point, one of my great fears in life is waking up very hungover and having to drive six hours to Kansas City <laughs> and play yeah. a gig. It's 100%. like the driving and like the work part of it. So that kind of fear of pain, that is a more effective tool to govern my behavior than being like, no, 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 Joe, you shouldn't do that. You should be good. That probably won't work with me. But the thought of not being able to play a show or the thought of injuring myself in some way really keeps me honest for the most part. Yeah, that definitely works for me as well. Having a really energetic toddler that just wakes up at a hundred percent. I think about tomorrow, Aaron, often. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's that's not going to work. hundred percent. You can stay up as late as you want as a parent, you can, but you're going to be getting up at the same time. Just because yeah. you stayed up till 1.30 doesn't mean you can sleep into 9.30. I tell people that a lot because the majority of our community here in Nashville don't have children. So when I do make it out to a show that I'm not playing here yep. in town, they're like, hey, you want to go here? I'm like, they're like, oh, you have to go home, right? Your kid's in bed. And I'm like, well, I don't have to. I could stay out until the sunrise. I can stay out as late as I want, but I'm going to get up at 5.30, so right. I'm going to go to bed because yes. that's early. By the yes. time you wake up, I'm going to be on lunchtime. I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things I've often been curious about for you, you guys live in your hometown, but you didn't always. You lived in Austin for a while and Chicago before that, but especially Austin being a music town, we've only ever lived in music towns. We Mm -hmm. lived in New York City for a long time and then Nashville. And it's always felt like this, oh, we have to live in music towns, Mm -hmm. primarily probably because of Aaron being a side person. But did that impact your relationship to your career? Also your identity, removing yourself from a scene where you're in it every day. It would be better for me to live in Nashville. I'll be completely honest with you. And all things being equal, if I didn't have certain, not only like immediate family obligations, but larger family obligations, we have a lot of family, you know, besides just our nuclear family here where we live in Maryland. All things being equal, if I didn't have those things to do, I'd be in Nashville right now. You can Zoom meeting all you want and you can see people on the road and that's cool. But being geographically close to be able to be like, hey, do you want to get together next Tuesday and write? I'll just drive over to your house. Do you want to do it tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow? Want to yeah. get together and write? That stuff, it makes a difference. And then the whole business apparatus is there as well. I don't know. If you're looking to sign a publishing deal, might be a good thing if while you're having dinner at Five Points, if you run into someone who runs a publishing house and you mentioned them, I'm shopping for a deal right now. And so It's fine that we live where we live. It is very meaningful to my kids go to the school where my wife, her alma mater and and stuff like that. So that is meaningful. But I'm not going to lie. Like from the business end, it would be much better for me to be in in Nashville right now. Do you think you'll 
always stay in Maryland or do you think about? Probably. I mean, like the family and the extended family thing, it's real and it's not going anywhere. And so that's a choice I'm making. And I have to remind myself sometimes when things don't move as fast or don't move at all. It's like, well, yeah, man, like it's a pretty tough choice to live a four hour Southwest flight away from where the entire business is. You know what I mean? And that is what it is. And you have to accept the ramifications of that. Yeah. At the same time, I will say living in the mix can also feel overwhelming mm-hmm. and sure. I think stifling <laughs> when everyone you are close friends with is doing the same thing and mm-hmm. every single person is a creative, a songwriter, a producer, whatever. One, it can start to feel stale because mm-hmm. you're like, man, I'd love to talk about something else. Like I'd love to have friends who do something else and we can learn about something else and two it can start to feel like what do i need to contribute everyone's so amazing and this is what is right in front of me constantly where do i fit in this am i needed which sometimes i think if you live elsewhere and you're not among a million musicians you might be like not questioning so often where you land in it all that makes sense i mean it's amazing that the music community is so large here and such a large percentage of the people that live in this town. You know, the thing that makes it Music City to me is two musicians, we can go and apply for a mortgage and be like, oh, we're working musicians. And our lender can be like, oh, you have a record deal. Yeah, okay, cool. And they understand right. what that means. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. 100%. You know, that's what makes it Music City. But then the other side of that coin, it's like Michaela saying, like everybody being musicians, it basically is just a 24-hour business conference. Our experience in New York, where you have world-class actors and dancers and all of these people making other forms of art, mm-hmm. the conversation where you can relate is on creativity where in being all just musicians here and in a pretty narrow genre band song adjacent i mean there's hip-hop here there's stadium rock here and all that but like generally across the board it's all based in songs and writing songs and all that Mm -hmm. that it just basically lends to like oh well what's working for you what's working for you oh what's the numbers on this there's a time and a place for that which is great and it's a great way to share ideas but when that's all you have all the time, it's kind of like constantly being at a conference. It's like the music equivalent of version. Uh, Johnny Fritz used to have that joke in L.A. When you would meet people, the first question you ask is, hey, I'm Joe. What's your diet? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's yeah. the, the music business version of that. Yeah. Now it's like, hey, who's your agent? Who's and your agent? Yeah. oh, do you have a deal? Or are you independent? What's going yeah. on? That being said, we don't get out as often as we used to. So... Maybe it's different. Maybe we just were in the wrong circles. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's obviously more to it than that. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I think both of us really subscribe to the grass is always greener. There's not a week that goes by that we're not looking at Redfin or Zillow at houses and who knows where. Oh, maybe we can move here. Imagining a different life. Kansas City. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever gone through a stretch of time where you have been blocked creatively, where you're stuck, where you can't? No. Do anything? No? No, I've definitely gone through stretches where the stuff I write and produce is not good. And I've definitely gone through stretches where because of other obligations in music like touring a bunch or other obligations with family like having very young kids where I haven't had the opportunity to write. But no, I've, I've never really had what anyone would describe as writer's block. But again, maybe some people experience writer's block because they'd be producing stuff that's really bad and they would just be like, what's the point in this? I'm going to stop doing it. Which again, like I've had very not fruitful periods, mm-hmm. but nothing that I would describe as I like, sit down and I'm just like, I got nothing. Yeah, that's never really happened to me. So when you're having not fruitful periods, you just keep pushing through that mud? Yeah, 
I do like to have several songs that I'm working on at a time. And the moment that I feel any amount of resistance working on something, I just drop it immediately and I move to another song. It is very rare that I will just sit there and for like a period of half hour, two hours, push the boulder up a hill of something that's not working. If I'm really close from a song that I think is really good and there's just the third verse lyric needs to be finished and then the song will just be done, I'll do it. Like I'll force myself to do that just to get it done. But in general, I'll sit down to work and I will work on a song that is fun for me to work on and that I'm having a good time and that I can immediately get into a flow state on. And the moment that flow state is not happening, either immediately or after a half hour or an hour, I just quit immediately and I go to another piece. Do you have like a disciplined writing routine or is it just whenever you have time? Whenever I have the opportunity, if the kids aren't sick and they're in school and obviously I have a lot of other obligations when I'm home, like the podcast, we're in my merchandise office here. Hey, look at that. Nice. So I fulfill all the merchandise. So I got a couple hours of work to do every day with just stuff like that. Generally, though, I will start the day by working for three or four hours, writing songs or recording songs. And then that's about all I'm good for. I I really don't do more than four hours of creative work on any given day, like ever, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty good. (laughs) That's a concept I've been thinking a lot about lately. Not just sitting around and waiting for the muse to hit. Mm -hmm. You know, like creating the situation and the headspace to be able to be creative and be productive when you do sit down to write, but Mm -hmm. knowing when to pull that plug and either shift to working on something else or just go and say my writing session for the day is done. Because I'm somebody that struggles with just going all in and like Looney Tunes, like running right off the cliff, going full in and realizing there's no ground below me and then crashing. Yeah, I can see how that would happen. You know, I suppose if I didn't have a family, I'd work a little bit more, but I do. And maybe when the kids are older, I'll have a chance to work a little bit more. But right now, four hours a day, five days a week pretty much suits me. I don't have to produce a ton of music. That kind of pace will keep me at a release every 18 months, which is about what I want to do. And you record your stuff. I do. Yeah, that's been a big switch. I've been doing that for a long time. And it's been stuff that I've started to release in the last three to four years. And I've gotten pretty... I've gotten pretty nifty with the recording stuff. I'm pretty good at it now. Yeah. Do you find that you record and produce a lot of stuff that you end up not releasing? Or is it pretty much like once you step into that production zone, do you kind of know that this is a song that you are going to want to release? There's a lot of stuff that gets recorded that doesn't get released, but there's not a lot of unreleased stuff that gets like too far down the pike. So I'll record something early on. And then again, if it's not working, I just abandon it immediately. And then I don't contribute a lot of time and energy and money into recording a song unless the early returns are showing me like this is going to be good. If that's the case, I'll sit down and I'll work on one song, the recording and writing of it for two or three weeks. You know what I mean? Now, again, it's two or three weeks of four-hour sessions, five days a week. I don't know how many hours that amounts to, but once I find something that I think is promising, I'll spend as long as it takes to get it. And if I think that something isn't promising, I mean, I just can't drop it quick enough. I have no time for things Mm -hmm. that I don't think are going to be compelling. Things that you do drop... Do you have a process of going back to them later? You know, if it's like, yeah. say the song is great and maybe just your original conception of it, do you then go back later on? Yeah, I, I upload a lot of that stuff to Dropbox. And then if I have a week coming up and there's not a song I'm going to be working on and I don't have any ideas, you know, that Sunday night when the family is down, I will pour myself a fermented beverage and put the earbuds in and just go through those demos. There's always some kernel of something that I can go work on the next day. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. single time there's something there. It seems like your life, your creativity, and your business is, like, very disciplined and organized. 
Is that a correct perception? Yeah, I'd say more than most, probably. This is like the main thing that I do. I don't have like other hobbies. You know what I mean? Like I'm not into like collecting things. I'm not into fishing. I'm not into hunting. I don't bowl. This is what interests me the most. And given my druthers, I would rather just be doing this. Yeah, do you find that structure frees up your creativity or is it more just necessity based? I guess it's just necessity based and it's just intuition based. I tend to gravitate towards what is pleasurable for me Mm -hmm. and what is interesting and I pay very close attention to what I'm interested in. So for example, like with the recording thing, I got interested in recording seven or eight years ago. It's interesting to me. I want to watch YouTube videos on this at night. I had a mix, had a mic something. Like, I'm going to follow my interest there. And that usually leads me to stuff. It used to be I was interested only in poetry, like early on. So I learned a lot about how to put words together. Then it was recording, then guitar playing. So I just tend to pay very close attention to what I'm interested in and then do only what I'm interested in and do nothing that's not interesting to me. Obviously, I have to do a lot of stuff on the business end that's not interesting to me, but that is to support the creative part. In the creative part, I only do things that are very interesting to me. To me, I'm not saying that they're interesting to other people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Very often, they're not interesting to other people. Yeah, no, I mean, Aaron can sit and watch YouTube videos all day about mixing and recording. Yeah. And like, you start talking to me about cables and I'm like, I'm out. I'm, I'm out. out, yeah. I'll never mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I like to say that Michaela finally understood the gear bug when we had a kid and she got into like baby gear. <laughs> oh, baby oh, gear. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah. ah, see, now you get it. Yeah. Now you get the bug. I have spreadsheets yeah. of like car seats, but amps and stuff. I'm like, just give me an acoustic guitar. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah, and Aaron's just like, just give me a pacifier and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a diaper and some wipes. I'm good to go. Yep. No, I have to say, he's there's some crazy baby gear out there. He's been impressed with the... Ingenuity. I'm a sucker for a good design. Like a great, aesthetically pleasing, but like very functional design. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm into it. Yeah. That's a big market, the baby gear thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> man. Yeah. yeah. We're in the wrong industry. Talk about being in it for the money. Man. I know. I know. So you started self-managing about mm-hmm. a year or so ago. Did that have any impact on headspace that it started to take up and having to separate your time into even more so of like handling more business stuff for yourself? And I know from just talking to you personally that I think it's been a pretty positive experience for you. I don't mind managing myself. That might change in the next mm-hmm. little while, but I've managed myself for two years. I don't mind doing it. Some artists do mind it though. And Mm -hmm. I get that. I think that it's not a great look to have to like negotiate things yourself all the time. And I probably have missed a few opportunities. When you tell people you don't have a manager in the music business, the reaction can be like, oh, are you quitting? What do you mean you don't? You know what I mean? Like, do you actually have a business that you're running? What are you doing here? And so there is a little bit of, um, I would say, almost understandable stigma about it. Mm -hmm. It seems like kind of unseemly to see an artist negotiate things on their behalf. But it's worked for me for the last couple of years. I don't know if it will always remain that way. Oh, that's good. I do think there's so many people working or trying to work in this business. So having kind of filters of, okay, Mm -hmm. this person has an agent or this person has a manager. So it's like vouching for them. So it can filter people out. At the same time, though, there's nothing wrong with handling a lot of stuff yourself and giving away pieces of the pie that you could be benefiting from keeping for yourself. Yeah, again, I think (laughs) it, it relates down to you're running a business and your time commitment to taking on the responsibilities of managing yourself. If what you would spend on a manager the 15 20 percent if you're able to do that yourself at more value 
to your business and yourself and you find it easy or relatively painless, why not go ahead and do that? It's worked for me for the last couple of years. But I, I think the need for that is going to vary from artist to artist and it's going to mm-hmm. vary from time to time in their career. That's a very personal decision as to whether to have that or not. I, I understand both sides of it. Yeah, I think, and I don't know if these are like secrets that we're not supposed to share, but I'm pretty sure like Jeff Tweedy now manages himself. And I would imagine maybe when you're at a certain age or level that either you're like, no, I don't want to deal with anything. Mm -hmm. Or you're like, I know myself and my business the best, so I should be the one representing myself. Well, hell, man, if Jeff Tweedy can do it, I can do it. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) He's got a huge thing. I just got my little little podunk operation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, just based with the topic of caring for yourself to try and make sure that you can sustain a long-term career, do you have any thing that you don't think we covered that would be vital or helpful to people listening, other musicians who might be struggling with this, or young musicians who might want to learn some lessons, you know, without having to learn them the hard way, of what you found helpful as you've evolved? I would just say that I don't conceptualize any of that as caring for myself to the degree that my actions are able to take care of myself, it's because I conceptualize it as taking care of the people in my life that are close to me, my family and my friends and my neighbors and the people who are in a hyper-local way very connected to me. And I conceptualize it on my better days of not being selfish and trying to be attentive to their needs and trying to be useful to the people around me in my life that I care about. And whenever I'm focused on that, rather than focused on myself or focused on the narrow interests of my career or something like that, I tend to be taken care of. You, you know what I mean? Like like, yeah. like like the natural fruit of that is that you're okay for the most part, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And to the degree that I focus on myself and professional aspirations, I tend to not do that well. It tends to lead me to a pretty negative place pretty quickly. So yeah, to me, self-care is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. And for me, it's better to conceptualize it as taking care of the people that are around you, being attentive to their needs, and then the rest will fall into place. Yeah, I think there's this challenging balance and understanding the difference between selfishness and selflessness. And Mm -hmm. when you are caring for yourself, because it's ultimately caring for others, it's not selfishly taking time for yourself or whatever the things are. It's like a mindfuck for me. But like, really, when you are in service to others, and wanting to be your best self for others, it feeds that so much more than if you're just like, I need to get things or I need to be better for myself. It's really a precarious relationship of putting others first and therefore being your best self. Yeah. I mean, at at the very end of Dante's Inferno, when they get to the seventh circle of hell and they find the devil there, the devil isn't this guy with fire who is paying attention to them. The devil is encased in ice and he's focused on himself. And he doesn't even notice Dante, the observer down there, because he's so inwardly focused on himself. And I think that that is a work of literature that gives us like a pretty big spiritual truth, which is if you want to put yourself in hell, focus on yourself as much as possible, as much as you can. Mm. Focus on you and yourself. That is the fastest way to put yourself into the farthest pit of hell immediately. And the thing is, like, when you think about that for even half a second, you immediately recognize how true it is because all the times in your life that have been the most unfulfilling have been those times when you've paid attention to yourself and completely abandoned your responsibility to the other people in your life. And it turns into a feedback loop very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well... Thank you so much for thanks for having me on talking with us. Very happy to be one of the first guests on your show. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Other 22 Hours podcast. You can find more info on this episode, including links to things that we talked about by going to theother22hours.com and clicking on episodes. We want this show to be a resource for our community, from our community. So we'd love to hear from you about what works and what doesn't. Please let us know by sending an email to info at theother22hours.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode.